Hi, Alan White here. Before we get started today, I've got some exciting news. First, the Exponential Group's podcast is now part of the Lumavaz podcast network, along with other great hosts like Steve Gladen from Saddleback Church, Carolyn Takeda from Group Talk, Rusty George, and many others. For more information on the Lumavaz podcast network, go to Lumavaz, L-U-M-I-V-O-Z, Dot com. And in case you're wondering, nothing is going to change with the Exponential Group's podcast. You don't have to go anywhere else to listen, but I just wanted to let you know. Another thing I'm very excited about is the release of the Exponential Group's audiobook. Now you can listen to the 250 pages of the Exponential Group's book, Unabridged, in just eight hours. And as much as I tried to behave in the recording studio... I did add a stray comment here or there. You can find the Exponential Group's audiobook wherever you buy your audiobooks. Now on to today's conversation with Larry Osborne. We have to be more careful than ever because uh, everybody is mad at everybody and ready to use a different dictionary to every word you're going to say because the whole culture and our people are part of a culture is a culture of relational destruction. You know, there's no political disagreements anymore. There's just, you know, grenades. It's, it's all or nothing on all sides. I think that doesn't impact the way that people hear the gospel, hear the way we teach the Bible. Welcome to the Exponential Group's podcast. I'm your host, Alan White. This podcast is designed to help you take the guesswork out of groups. In each episode, you will discover effective ways to recruit more leaders, form better groups, and make more disciples. Please subscribe to this monthly podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to episode 16. Today's guest is Larry Osborne. Larry is a teaching pastor and kingdom ambassador at North Coast Church in Vista, California, helping to oversee its growth from 128 to over 13,000 in weekend attendance with seven local campuses. A sought-after trainer of pastors, leaders, and church planters, he has been acclaimed as one of the most influential and innovative pastors in America for pioneering such concepts as sermon-based small groups, pastoral teaching teams, video venues, and multi-site churches. His fingerprints are found on churches throughout the world. Larry's leadership books include Lead Like a Shepherd, Sticky Church, Sticky Teams, Sticky Leaders, Mission Creep, and The Unity Factor. Larry holds a Master of Divinity and Doctorate degree from Talbot Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Nancy, live in Oceanside, California. They have three married children and eight grandchildren. For more information on Larry's ministry, go to LarryOsborne.com. And now my conversation with Larry Osborne. So how are you? I'm doing good. Well, let's go back, um, talk about the early days of North Coast. How, How old is North Coast as a church? 1978 is when it started as a Bible study in somebody's home. And I think its first official meeting was sometime that year. Uh, I came in 1980, so I didn't plan it from zero. There were about 70 adults meeting in the Carlsbad High School cafeteria my first Sunday. I'm like the founder builder, if you will. And of course, Mm -hmm. I'm not the lead pastor anymore. Last three years, Chris Brown has been that. And I'm uh, uh, a teaching pastor and kingdom ambassador and whatever it is they need me to do. So. So you're you're the sage at this point. I, I don't know what that means. It means I get a, <laughs> I get to skip a few meetings, but uh, I, you know, we've always had a teaching team. So you know, I've taught uh, twenty times this year. Used to teach 23, 24. So uh, 
that hasn't changed radically, but uh, some of the other areas Chris has taken over. That's good. That's good. So back in uh, 1980, when you came in, uh, what was North Coast like? Worship style, ministry style? What did that look like? It was a typical church plant made by middle-aged people. So they were, you know, worship style was uh, basically, the calendar said 1980, they were trying to do 1970. It was uh, a group of people that had a young pastor uh, he was a little older than me. I was only 28. Nancy, my wife, was 24 when we came. So my goodness. Course, we knew everything. So this guy was a few years <laughs> older than me. <clears throat> but still, the idea was we, we we want a church that's a church for us, uh, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and so it took a few years uh, until we kind of had worship that uh, actually matched the calendar. Since then, we've been able to keep up with that. And probably around the sixth year. It took about five, six years to get there. And uh, there was a lot of turnover the first few years. And then at that point, I sat down with a guy who finally got us to uh, reach the calendar. And I said, okay, Paul, you've done an awesome job getting us here, but you realize your future uh, from raises to opportunity, everything is not going to be getting an all-star band. It's going to be raising up worship leaders. So that became the uh, the gold star of our whole worship ministry which is why we have so many you know we got 20 something bands or whatever because rather than making a recording industry uh, we've we've tried to uh, actually be a place to uh, identify empower and release worship leaders so that's been a fun part of it that's great and if, if i recall correctly you offer venues with different styles of worship is that well, correct the, yeah the reason we were pro uh, probably uh the reason God used us to be the first one to do the video venues and all that is, is we were primed for it. If we hadn't done it, somebody else is going to do it within five years. Absolutely. Because mm -hmm. of video and things was dropping the quality, getting so much better. But we had at that point, four worship bands, completely different uh, that were rotating every single week. So our guy had done such a good job. We had four quality bands. And uh, when we had about 3000 people, uh, uh, in the warehouse we were meeting, we could only see 500 adults. So we had to come up with some solution. I mean, we had multiplied all the services we could. So this idea of simultaneous services and then, hey, what the heck, make them different, a reward, not an overflow room. Uh, that that led us to uh, what eventually just exploded over the next three to five years. Uh, we went from, I think, 89 people in a small little room the first week we did it. Mm -hmm. uh, three years later, 3,200 people, adults, were choosing one of our video venues not and not the live room. So it just opened up the door for growth. We had no idea was being log jammed just by not having space or yeah. having only one style of worship. That's true. Now, in, in addition to having more than one style of worship, what did you see? What do you feel with the advantages of having worship in a smaller setting instead of just building a massive auditorium? Well, yeah, we were we were probably kind of early on seeing the end of the massive large auditoriums because the reason you have them is you're a very regional church, which is a new phenomenon. I mean, there were no mega churches until there was mobility. Mm -hmm. So leave your neighborhood and go to your preferred. And um what what we were sensing was people that drive more than 20 minutes, two things disappear. Come and see evangelism, which is a primary way adults come to Jesus mm -hmm. in a lasting way. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, youth involvement. And so it just 
hit us that uh, people will choose a smaller environment and you need more volunteers, you need more. See, some people see that as negative. Uh, I saw that as positive. Mm -hmm. The best days of empowerment in our church are the early church plant days when you suddenly are strong enough, we're going to make it, we're going to survive. And you have all kinds of roles that people can take. Uh, but the larger church kids, there's less and less roles that people can take. So this idea of multiplying services pre-COVID, I think, location, time in this region right here, mm -hmm. uh, within our drive time, we had 56 services going on of different from, from style to location to time. Wow. Well, think of how many people now could have a significant role in ministry. Mm -hmm. You could still have the quality offerings that cause you to become a big church. I mean, churches can't choose to become big. They become big because people choose to go there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's kind of a conundrum that happens. Uh, when you have high quality, you get large crowds. Well, what can you do to sh shrink those crowds and yet still offer the quality that draws people? So do you find that there's sociological about the size of the room that people are meeting in? Yeah. And I think that's changed over time and become even more significant. Uh, I call it, can you find a friend? Mm -hmm. If a room is so large that uh, a friend will be there and you won't be able to find them unless you really look hard, that you've become an event. Uh, and uh, it's like the restaurant that is so good, it's got a long line, but it's not long until that long line causes it to become what I call a special event restaurant. Mm -hmm. It's not one you go to spur them all, hey, let's go out tonight. And uh, I think that was one of the things that fed the uh, declining number of services that people were showing up uh, on a month, because the more you become an event, uh, the less relational you are, the less you have a needed role, all kinds of things go on and a bunch of other factors as well contributed. And I'm kind of wondering out loud these days if some of the you know lack of people coming back to in-person services is related to where they're finding community. You know, if it's just programming, you get programming online, right? Let's let's switch to small groups. You're you're known for sermon-based groups. Um how did how did you come upon that idea and uh, why did you choose that path? Well, I always thought small groups were an important thing. I'd been a youth pastor and we'd had them when I, I came to North Coast. Once we had about 120 people, adults showing up, that just over 100 number. I felt like we were fooling ourselves. We thought we were a really close group, but we were really a bunch of people at the core who knew each other very well and everybody else we were happy to be an acquaintance with. But new people don't want a friendly church. They want friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were fooling ourselves that people were actually connecting. Uh, you know, they were, uh, again, they were meeting people, they were getting to be an acquaintance, but they weren't being invited over for a barbecue or, hey, you wanna go to a game with me, whatever. So I had this idea, we've, we've got to make small groups a hub of our ministry. And like I said, we were barely over a hundred adults and I just felt we were fooling ourselves. And then the sermon base part came mostly uh, because I observed a bunch of other models that seemed really good, but they were, they were models that were designed to bring people into the church rather than slam the back door shut. Uh, very influenced by things going on in Korea and uh, a bunch of books that were written about that model. Uh, but as I looked around the, uh, the States, I found only a handful of churches in which small groups were really the first point of connection. Uh, that when I looked around the world, it was in places where Christianity was considered a cult. Uh, where uh, And it would be the same thing here. It's much 
people will quickly go to a church here. They've been to one for a wedding. They know there's a, a back row in an aisle they can sit on and leave. They're very hesitant to go to a home. But if they were getting into Buddhism or some Eastern religion or New Age thing or whatever, the last thing they'd go to is a temple because hmm. they wouldn't know when to stand up, sit down, fight, 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 or anything going on. <laughs> they would probably go to a small group. And so that aha for me uh, caused us to say, let's switch it. Let's use it to create relationships and slam the back door shut, not as an evangelistic tool. I think it works in theory as that but I just don't find real models where it's working. And that led to the sermon base model because it's so simple. It's just used mm-hmm. to one on one and it reaches men so much better. Uh, men as a whole, this is a stereotype, but men as a whole are not readers. All kinds of publishers have studies on that. That's why there's so much estrogen when you go into a, a old school bookstore mm-hmm. where Amazon took them over. And, but all men tend to be an expert not on the little booklet they read, they'll be hesitant if they're new at this stuff. Uh, but they're an expert on the movie they saw. Hmm. And and so to just talk about the sermon, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll talk about that all day long. To talk about a book uh, that I a little booklet I just read, and I'm not that familiar with all the phrases, how to pronounce the words, uh, I go silent. So we've been able to reach men incredibly well. Uh, all of these years, uh, I believe, because of that, and and new believers who don't. Yeah, know that's can, that's a great insight. It's just easy. It is, and I think there's a genius to going back and revisiting the topic from the weekend. You know, refreshes your mind. You have a chance of okay, how am I going to apply this to my life? And then I have a group that's going to support me if I feel prompted to. You know, I'm preaching to the choir, but yeah, I grew up uh, going to church. And we had a Sunday school thing. We had then a sermon. And then if you love the pastor, you showed up on Wednesday night for now. I never knew what we were studying, something out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So we chose, we chose kind of the in and out burger model. Very few things on the menu, uh, as opposed to the jack-in-the-box model, which I felt a lot of the churches were. Funny commercials, huge menu, no line. Yeah. and and you, But you really, I mean, you shouldn't be able to order tacos and egg rolls in the same place. It's just wrong. <laughs> so, you know, give me the burger protein style and the fries animal style any day. But, uh, you know, but you have to know what that means, right? Um, so you mentioned other churches that you saw that were doing some things that were appealing to you at the time. Who, who were some of those early influences on your small group ministry? Uh, probably the most significant thing I picked up is when I had this vision, I had one of our staff member go out and search places. And he did something that was genius that I always tell pastors and leaders to do. And my bias was to find all the best models by size in the world. So there was a huge one in Texas. I was looking at Korea. I did have those questions about, hey, I don't think it works this way or that. But I, I looked at the highly successful and he did something very different. He looked for successful at a church we would go to if we lived in that town. Hmm. Brilliant. He didn't even know what he's doing. It's the second time he did that on the ministry assignment. I said, do you realize what you just did? This is brilliant <clears throat> because it, it meant that there would be a cultural fit. Uh, and uh, it was a, a church up in Westlake. Uh, it's slipping my mind. I think it was something Westlake Community Church, church about 1,200 or so. And they were doing uh, small small groups, very similar to what we did. So that first year, we just copied their model because we'd go to this church and they were ahead of us. 
Uh, and then the second year or third year, we made the big switch to sermon based and a few other things, but it got off the ground because I found a, a successful model I could use as an absolute recipe that fit our DNA, which was the big mistake I think most people make. They look for the biggest, baddest, most well-known small group ministry, and yet they'll tell me, well, but I wouldn't go to that church if I lived in that town. Well, then probably their style of ministry won't work for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is a great way to look at it for sure. Now, I know you mentioned that you looked at uh, Cho's model from Korea. A lot of people have embraced aspects of that. Um, if I remember right, I, I got a recording from a conference and you said something about why that won't work in the U.S., what, what were you what what were your objections well, yeah well my i have a chapter in sticky church that's called why chose model won't work in your church and it really applies to brazil africa everywhere you see these movements because even in these catholic countries evangelical christianity uh not the political sense of it but the historic sense of the word uh is seen as a cult mm-hmm. and uh, what i found is where it was uh, uh reaching people as the first place to come you had certain common denominators and uh, one of them is a history of military coups very strong male dominant leadership Hmm. and those pastors when they say jump people ask how high on the way up and really every single one of those cultures so they can demand people to go to a small group demand people to be in the neighborhood demand and it's just expected when they in the culture strong leadership and i think we miss that I tell pastors, you know, Cho, I read an interview with him and, and he was asked, uh, well, what happens if somebody doesn't go to a group? And he says, oh, 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 I tell them they have sinned against God and their pastor and they need to go to Prayer Mountain to repent, this big prayer mountain they had. Mm-hmm. And I tell American pastors or European pastors, you try that and you'll be at Prayer Mountain. <laughs> Say, where did my people go? Yeah, I have no it's church. a very different culture. You're and right. Sex And so strong uh, strong uh, leadership, uh, uh, almost dictatorial history. Uh, second thing is Christianity's a foreign religion. Mm-hmm. Third thing is they're mostly led by uh, uh, women, mm-hmm. even if the groups aren't. The webs of relationship are relational. Uh, it's They're not in highly mobile cultures like we are where relatives don't live together. So it's an aunt or it's an uncle or it's some relative inviting you to their home and you'll go to that home. Uh, so those are just uh, 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 a few of the things that cause it to be a very different environment. Genius in that culture, mm-hmm. but not a real good fit here. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's important because, like you mentioned, South America people trying to impose like a 12G model or some things like that, and it's just it doesn't fit, you know, because it, it's like trying to have a revival in Southern California. You go back 20 years in the Bible Belt, revival could work. Uh, but 40 years ago in California, revival didn't work because you didn't have uh, cultural Christianity. We mm-hmm. were all in Europe. So you don't have people going just for cultural reasons. So yeah. There's nobody to revive. That's that's true. That makes a lot of sense. Well, speaking of cultural changes, we've seen a lot of cultural change in the last uh, two years. So... What, what have you seen from kind of your vantage point, what used to work that's continuing to work and what's maybe not working so well that we need to innovate a little bit? Well, I, I think COVID speeded up some things that were going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we used to be Macy's with a website. 
you know, trying to drive foot traffic. And uh, now we've come out where we were headed anyway, more like Home Depot, I believe the number four or five retailer, uh, online retailer, but only 5% of their sales come online. But what happens is people, they'll, they'll want to go to the Home Depot store to see it, or they'll go, oh, I know what it is. I just ordered online. They want to pick it up fast. So they order it now, get it from the locker. Uh, they go in, you know, it's just agnostic about how the interaction takes place. Hmm. And the church uh, uh, kind of was fast forwarded to that uh, during COVID. And, and that's part of the reason people aren't coming back that people don't realize it's the pastors and worship leaders that want everybody in the room to create the energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, forsake not gathering together is not about coming in a large assembly with hazers, smoke machines and a mic, you know, a sound system. Uh, it's about a house church and and staying in, in contact. And so people have chosen to do that. I think another thing that's going on, I talk a lot about is our 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 culture uh, is at the the bottom rung of Romans one when it talks 18 to 32, where it talks about a culture that turns its back on God getting darker and darker and darker. And mm-hmm. I mean, most Christians and even Christian leaders think the bottom rung is, is sexual decadence. But if we read the passage, actually, the last few verses, I think it's 28 to 32, when God finally gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done, just the absolute bottom, it's not about sexual decadence, it's about relational destruction. Hmm. Uh, every single word in there is a lack of faithfulness, slander, gossip, you name it. I mean, and, you know, Christian publishers now have become TMZ. Uh, it's just like we just gossip, slander, you name it. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of the big thing. And everybody's mad at everybody. And it wasn't COVID that created it. It was a downward cycle culture. And a second thing, echo chambers, which are produced by the fact you can you can choose your source of music, your source of information, your source of news, your source of theology. And and so our our... We've always lived in echo chambers. They just used to be geographic. Now they're by choice. Mm-hmm. And one group looks at another group today and thinks the only reason they hold that viewpoint is they're either stupid or immoral. And no, they hold that viewpoint because it's consistent with the uh, echo chamber they're in. And by the way, you're in one as well. So how has that impacted ministry? Um, we have to be more careful than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, everybody is mad at everybody and ready to use a different dictionary to every word you're going to say, uh, because the whole culture and our people are part of a culture is a culture of relational destruction. You know, there's no political disagreements anymore. There's just, you know, grenades. Uh, it's it's all or nothing on all sides. Uh, and, and to th- think that doesn't impact the way that people hear the gospel, hear the way we teach the Bible. I think the echo chambers mean we need to work together with the church across the street far more than ever, because our ability to reach people is actually getting narrower. Mm-hmm. As people are no longer listening to learn, they're listening to find out what side you're on. Yes. And we even uh, learned that during the pandemic, you know, with what I referred to as the maskites and the anti-maskites, you know, straight out totally. of the book, straight out of the book of Galatians. So yeah. let's say the you know obviously we're still called to reach a world, but let's say that people are assuming that churches are conservative and hold certain conservative political views. Maybe we're perceived as being closed-minded or even hateful or unaccepting, that sort of thing. How does a church overcome that stereotype 
to reach a community and, you know, spread the love of Christ. Yeah, well, not everybody's going to agree with me. Uh, more people agree now than did 10 years, 12 years ago when I started giving a talk called The Switzerland Principle uh, and how it's important it is to stick with the Bible mm-hmm. and not the cultural applications when you come to politics or any hot-button issue. Everybody thinks they have to speak to the hot-button issue while it's hot. Uh, but the problem is nobody's listening when you speak to the hot-button issue while it's hot. They're only listening to find out what side you're on. Mm-hmm. And I can prove this. I've literally asked thousands of pastors now, and I said, how many of you have spoken to a hot-button issue, politically, culturally, whatever, when it's on the front pages, and had someone come up to you afterward and say, Pastor, thank you so much. You changed my mind. I've never had a hand go up. And I said, because we need the wisdom to understand that if we're going to do the work of an evangelist, as Timothy was called to do, which, by the way, is leading people to Christ and discipling them, mm-hmm. you know, a great yes. commission until they obey everything Jesus taught, but that whole framework, um, that what we've got to do is we've got to stick to the gospel. And as people grow in the gospel, they'll have a better understanding of culturally how it fits or how they ought to vote or whatever that would be. But when I put that up front, the person who isn't yet where I'm proclaiming we should be thinks they're the enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got story after story here at North Coast, and so does Chris Brown, of of people who came completely unbiblical viewpoints. And after a while, they hear us just teach Jesus. They thought they were our enemy. Uh, and then their crossed arms become unfolded. Then they step over the line and follow Jesus. And then six months, a year later, they're going, I can't believe how my values and actions have been transformed. But had we met them at the door, you know, with, hey, you got to have these eight viewpoints, uh, it wouldn't happen. Now, that doesn't mean to reach lost people, we we lower the standards. At North Coast, we still practice church discipline on the specific list that is mentioned there. Mm-hmm. Uh, high-handed sin is high-handed sin, but I just don't find any of the epistles railing on the culture. They rail on the church. Mm-hmm. When I rail on the culture, I just get a bunch of people amening me, and I never get anybody in the culture coming back a second time to hear the gospel. Yeah. And I think that's important because as confused as people are, as anxious as people are right now, you know, if we can lead them to what, what we have that is solid and doesn't change. um, I think for a lot of people that would be welcomed if, if it's, you know, we can get all the other stuff out of the way. I was with a pastor uh, last week and he said that most Christians are one, one yard sign away from destroying their witness. I think that's probably true. I mean, I got off social media uh, because I had all these friends and every now and then they would post something about everybody who holds a certain viewpoint, which sometimes I held that viewpoint being an idiot or whatever. And like, you're wrecking my friendship, dude. I don't Mm. really care what your view is, but you just painted me. And so I found people I liked. I was starting to stop like just because I was hearing every word they were saying. Reminds me of Ecclesiastes. Don't listen to every word your servant says about you because you know that you too have cursed others. <laughs> and and that sense of why I got off social media relationally is the same thing with the yard signs or the messages. When we feel we've got to retweet or like everything that's a statement as if somehow, you know, we're these great philosopher of life, all we do is lose opportunities. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, true. If you were to go back to 1980, start all over again, 
or or you would say the pastor that's starting a church today, how would you do it? What would you advise that pastor to do? Well, I think my personal biggest mistake I would do differently if I could start all over. I had been in large churches, and in larger churches, what you do is as important or sometimes even more than who you are. And a smaller church, who you are is everything. Uh, and I spent too much time preparing sermons because at, at 23, 24, I was the second preacher in this huge Baptist church, uh, probably the uh, second largest of that tribe. Mm-hmm. And so, boy, you better prepare really well. Well, when you got 70 adults, no, you better hang out with them more and prepare a little less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be quite as smooth as it did with all the thousands of people listening. Uh, it has to be genuine and real. So I, I think my biggest mistake was kind of having a big dream of who I was going to reach. And instead of shepherding the flock I had, I used the flock I had to reach the people I wanted to reach. Mm. No wonder they never brought any of their friends. We grew by one my first three years. Wow. <laughs> and when I finally gave up building a big church and said, I'm going to take care of who I have. And uh, maybe I'm not so special. And maybe God doesn't meet, need me to make something so great for him suddenly they started bringing their friends left and right. So that would be it is I, I just say, focus, shepherd people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it gets bigger, you're still shepherding people, but you can't do it all yourself. Make sure you're creating systems that they're cared for as well or better than they were when you were a handful of people. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I think that's an important word right now, because, you know, most pastors I talk to, they haven't, you know, achieved their pre-COVID attendance, not saying that that should necessarily be our goal, but, um, you know, just the notion of lead the people you have and not the people that you lost, um, you know, that kind of thing is hard. Appreciate your time. I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with a joke that you might appreciate. So the Sunday school teacher asked her class, what would it be like to live in a land flowing with milk and honey? And a little boy raised his hand and said, sticky. (laughs) Because you have the sticky books, so I've I think got a few of them. I've got a few. <laughs> so I, I thought as I was preparing for this, I thought of that old joke. Uh, um, so anyway, anyway, thank you very much for your time. Sure. And um, anything you're working on that we should know about? Nope, just working on working on stuff. Uh, trying to, you know, preach well here, mentor the pastors, I have the privilege of doing, and and just I'm just keeping on, keeping on. That's so. good. And if anybody wanted to reach you, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, Northcoastchurch.com is a great place to uh, find me or LarryOsborne.com uh, has information as well. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. And to help others find us, please rate and review this podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Say that three times fast. All right. Thank you for listening.